This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, the business station. Good afternoon. This is Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture and I'm Juliet Jacobs. Today is another episode of our ongoing series, There's No Planet B, where we want to share everything you need to know about the climate crisis. So on previous episodes in this series, we've touched on why we're in a climate crisis, the effects of the crisis and also climate governance. On this episode, we want to tackle the three pillars of international climate change law, mitigation, adaptation and loss and damage. So the Paris Agreement discusses loss and damage using the phrase averting, minimising and adjusting addressing loss and damage. And loss and damage can be averted by curbing greenhouse gas emissions, mitigation, and minimised by taking preemptive action to protect communities from the consequences of climate change, adaptation. Now, Pakistan, a country responsible for less than 1% of global emissions, is now facing US $10 billion uh, worth of damage after the devastating floods that hit the country, highlighting something climate campaigners have warned for years. The global south is being disproportionately affected by climate change. Do we have a comprehensive understanding of mechanisms to directly address loss and damage once a climate catastrophe hits? Why is loss and damage in particular such a contentious issue in climate talks? I'm going to discuss this and more with Minakshi Raman, the president of Sahabat Alam Malaysia and the head of programs at the Third World Network. Welcome, Mina. How are you today? I'm fine, Julian. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me today. So, um, yes, I've been waiting to, you know, have you on this particular segment uh, because you're always my my guru when it comes to anything to do with the climate talks. Um, so the Paris Agreement, as I mentioned earlier, um, it discusses loss and damage using those phrases, right? Averting, minimizing and addressing loss and damage. Um, can you walk us through what the differences are between mitigation, adaptation and addressing loss and damage? Sure. Uh, I think mitigation, when most people understand that to mean reducing emissions, right? So uh, mitigation means reducing emissions, basically. Um, so that's how they use it in the climate uh, discourse, and in particular in the UN crime, uh, Framework Convention on Climate Change and um, the Paris Agreement. Um, so that is about taking action to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, fossil fuel phase-out, and so on and so forth. So it has to. De- it, it basically is about uh, how do we um, change our energy systems, um, how do we transform our um, economy so that it is not fossil fuel dependent. So that's what mitigation is normally referred to as. Adaptation is basically, um, you know, adapting to the effects um, of climate change, um, because as a result of the historical emissions, because we know that carbon dioxide, particularly, um, is a long-lived gas, so its impact since the Industrial Revolution is still being felt today. So because of the historical emissions and because of um, global warming um, and temperature rising, there are consequences and impacts which we face which, for instance, the impact of drought, the impact of uh, intense or extreme weather, you know, with the increasing temperatures, rainfalls which are intense, like what we saw in Pakistan, and so on. So the impacts of floods, for instance, um, and um, increasing rising temperatures which affect drought, and and those, those are examples. And the impact of that is quite um, enormous because what happens then is that uh, because of these 
climate impacts, agriculture is affected because our planting cycles, which depend on you know rainfall or um, other stable climates, suddenly you know they are off the whack, yeah. and so you have to begin to do things differently. Or uh, even you know, if in terms of floods, you build a particular road or a, a highway or a bridge and so on, and then you have massive rainfalls, and then you see that uh, that uh, the bridges uh, are no longer as stable as they are. We witness landslides. We witness um, you know landslips and so on. So these are not these are actually basically undermining the climate impacts, which are. And begin to undermine your entire infrastructure and so on. So this is what is called adaptation, where you have to adapt to these changes. So for instance, if you're living in along the coast and you know that that is going to be um, a saltwater intrusion because yeah. of, of erosion and therefore your salt is, uh, you know, your saline soils are increasing. And so you can, can no longer plant. So you need to adapt. So what do you have to do? Do you have to move people in, uh, further up uh, along from the coast? Do you change your agriculture system? And so on and so forth. So that's what they mean by adaptation, uh, which means that you have to uh, adjust, in other words, to climate impacts. Mm -hmm. And this is also linked to what, what now the IPCC calls the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the, the, the large number of scientists who call climate resilient development. That means you begin to actually do your development in a way that becomes resilient. That means you can withstand your climate uh, impacts. And I recall, many, um, you know, I've also given the the um, explanation about how you live in a house and it's and you build without taking into account the climate impacts. So it becomes hotter and hotter, and even you know, with uh, air conditioning and so on, it it doesn't get any cooler. So you can't, you know, living becomes almost impossible. So this is what we mean by, um, you know, redoing everything in a way that can adapt to climate uh, impacts. So that's what adaptation means. Mm -hmm. And of course, the third element, the third pillar, which um, was born actually um, sometime in 20, uh, around 20, but just before the Paris Agreement, 2018, uh, thereabouts, this whole notion of loss and damage, which is about um, adapt, you know, not being able to adapt anymore, but losses and damage, damages which are which are resulting from um, extreme events like a cyclone, like a hurricane, um, like what we saw in Pakistan, sure. to uh, slow onset events. Slow onset events is like glacial melting, like now the Green Lane ice sheet is melting faster than ever, mm -hmm. sea level rises, and as a result of which, you have slow onset events. So because of that, the you cannot adapt anymore, like coastal communities are no longer able to live along the coast, um, there is a damage which happens because of a cyclone, and so you suffer losses and you suffer damage. Closer to our home is, uh, lately it's Pakistan, before that it used to be Typhoon Haiyan and others in, in um, Philippines that we have seen, yeah. So, so the devastation that results from that. So that's the the area of uh, loss and damage, which is highly controversial um, mm. in the climate discourse. And before we started speaking about loss and damage in in like the Paris Agreement and all of that, there was something called the Warsaw Mechanism. Am I correct? 
Yes, this was um, actually um, in, established in Warsaw. It came after a big fight um, between developing countries and the developed world, particularly with the United States, because the United States was refusing to have a new concept called loss and damage. Right. Because for them, and um, under the Climate Convention, um, you know, there is an obligation for developed countries to contribute finance um, for uh, climate impacts. So for the longest time, the notion of loss and damage was always attached to adaptation because the U.S. did not want another pillar because the the obligation for financing for mitigation, there's obligation for financing for adaptation. So what they didn't want was more obligations for financing loss and damage. Mm -hmm. So that's why it has remained controversial and continues to remain controversial. So there is uh, there was this um, mechanism called the Warsaw International Mechanism on Loss and Damage. The basic um, premise of that was actually to begin to understand better um, what uh, loss and damage meant uh, or means for developing countries. Um, and so this this was a body that had established um, under that mechanism that was established. Uh, an executive committee um, that has to deal with uh, this concept of loss and damage. And so they have been um, having meetings and discussions. It's basically a committee made up of um, developed and developing countries. And they have been um, advising the conference of parties in terms of um, how do you, um, that the, the three aspects to that, right? It's averting averting loss and damage, which means that you prevent it from happening, right. uh, loss and damage from happening. And then you have minimizing, which means that even if you cannot avert, how do you minimize? That means you it's not so catastrophic that it is actually much more uh, less than the full-blown um, loss and damage. So it's minimizing. And then the, the addressing, where you cannot avoid anymore, so you have to address it. So there are these three terms and there is a lot of discussions which go on in terms of technicalities in in trying to assist developing countries um, you know begin to understand and also be supported um, um, for responding to loss and damage so it's still it's still not um, I mean it is a committee that meets and so on and they've produced some um, technical papers and this and that but um, in Glasgow there was this big effort to actually set up a new mechanism beyond the Warsaw International Mechanism because uh, the developing countries in particular have felt that the Warsaw International Mechanism is not moving fast enough, is not responding fast enough. So what you actually need is a, another mechanism to actually be much more of a technical assistance mechanism. Right. Uh, so it was called the Santiago Network because Santiago was the Chilean cop. Uh, conference of parties. Yeah. So they named it after the Chilean COP, which was in Santiago de Chile. So Santiago Network on um, Loss and Damage. So the idea of that is actually as a technical assistance body. And currently uh, in the run-up to the Egypt Conference of Parties, the big discussion is how do you actually make this mechanism work? Who will be the host? Uh, where will it be located? 
Is it under the conference of parties? How will the financing arrangements happen? So this is what we term in, in the climate negotiations as implementing the mechanism or what's called um, operationalizing the Santiago network on loss and damage. So we are hoping that in the Shamal Sheikh uh, COP later this year in November, that there would be a concrete outcome on this, which actually has a technical um, mechanism, technical assistance mechanism, where developing countries can go to this mechanism. And um, it's not so much about asking for funds, but it's more about getting technical assistance in terms of responses to how do you how do you actually address loss and damage? How do you avert it? How do you minimize it? And and you know everything that you need from technology, uh, the, the 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 preparedness, the readiness, and all that aspect of 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 loss and damage. So this is what uh, is the understanding of what the Santiago Network is about. Okay, all right. We'll just go for a quick break, Mina. When we come back, I just want to talk a little bit more about, um, I guess, you know, why this is so contentious, right, in, in the talks, why the US has been blocking such efforts at every turn, pretty much. Um, I'm speaking today to Minakshi Raman. She's the president of Sahabat Alam Malaysia. She's the head of programs at the Third World Network. It's another episode of There's No Planet B, and we're tackling mitigation, adaptation, and loss and damage. We'll have more after this quick break. You're listening to Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture, BFM 89.9. Welcome back. This is Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture. I'm Juliet Jacobs. It's another episode of There's No Planet B, our ongoing series where we want to share everything you need to know about the climate crisis. So today we're tackling three pillars, uh, three legal pillars actually, uh, of international climate change law, mitigation, adaptation and loss and damage, uh, which Mina, my guest, Minakshi Raman, the president of Sahaba Alam Malaysia and the head of programs at the Third World Network, uh, outlined for us just now before the break. Uh, now, Mina, I just want to talk a little bit about about, you know, accessing uh, loss and damage financing and all of that. So I was reading the World Resources Institute website, right? And they said that across 2019 to 2020, the average annual global financing for climate action came to $632 billion, right? And of this total, about 90.3% went to mitigation, 7.2% went to adaptation, and the remaining 2.4% went to activities that covered both. So while some of this likely addressed loss and damage, there was no clear estimate for how much it was, nor was there a clear or sort of comprehensive understanding of mechanisms to directly address loss and damage once a climate catastrophe hits. Um, would you agree with what they said, that, that there is no sort of comprehensive understanding? Uh, yeah, because, um, you know, the one of the biggest problems really in relation to loss and damage is that um, uh, even from the IPCC and the scientific community is what's known as attribution. Mm -hmm. How do you attribute, like say, what's happened in Pakistan to a climate event? Okay. You know, how is it different from a natural disaster? So it is, it is really a very complex area. And this is why, um, you know, I think what we will see happening a lot more is the much more uh, push for attribution studies that uh, you actually say that what's happening here is not just a normal phenomenon or a natural disaster phenomenon, that, but that it actually is related or can be attributed to um, the climate impacts, um, to, to the climate problem. And so 
in terms of the numbers. Yeah? So this is this is a huge issue um, because the, in, the we are all very familiar with humanitarian assistance. Yeah. Right. Um, when a disaster strikes, you know, you have the Sendai framework, for instance, Sendai is a city in, in Japan. And there is a the, there's an entire world of disaster risk reduction. Um, and so within within the UN as well. So they deal with uh, humanitarian assistance. They deal with uh, natural disasters and even our own country, you know, in terms of the uh, national responses and so on. A lot of it also is built on experiences um, and you have a flood event and all the the steps that you need to do in terms of warning systems, early warning systems, um, rescue operations, recovery, rehabilitation, um, and so on and so forth. So um, that's been going on for some time now in the in, around the world. But a lot of it is really humanitarian in the sense that countries will have to say, you know, uh, please help us. And then there is this... this uh, whatever call and 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 either through the UN or bilateral assistance and donors send um, humanitarian responses um, for these kinds of disasters. So in the realm of loss and damage, um, one I said is at the attribution issue. How do you know that this is not natural disaster, uh, but it's actually a climate induced event? Um, so therefore the financing aspect, what exactly um, are the needs uh, because if you if you really look at uh, the numbers now, it's really frightening yeah. in terms of the frequency of what's happening and the man, the, the the huge amounts of, of devastation, like forest fires and the burning and the and the you know heating and the massive floods, for instance, in Pakistan. So you're talking about a lot lot more billions, um, and how do you cost it? And even in our country, in terms of the floods and the what we are seeing in terms of the amount of losses, uh, it, it's it's quite massive and the numbers are staggering. Yeah. So it's not easy. It's not easy to quantify. Uh, it's not easy to attribute. And so this is all uh, what you call it uh, aspects that need to be dealt with. It cannot just be simply dismissed. But this is why um, the developing countries in the Paris Agreement and in the Framework Convention on Climate Change are calling for much more focus in this area so that they get the support and the res and and the um, assistance that is needed so that you don't look at this just as a natural disaster. It's no longer a natural disaster. Mm -hmm. And it cannot be humanitarian assistance because if it happens too often, um, how do you how do you even cope? A country which is hit over and over again, your entire economy wiped out, particularly for those who are who are always in the in that uh, hitting hit area you know the yeah. very vulnerable yeah, yeah. so so this, this this is this is this is actually very complex Okay, so there's many challenges then also in in terms of assessing loss and damage financing isn't it Yes, totally okay. but what what we are pushing for uh, um, as developing countries is basically to begin to recognize that you need a technical assistance body that you need a funding facility so that it doesn't have to rely on humanitarian assistance, but it builds from the lessons and the learnings of the, of the disaster community, uh, disaster preparedness community, disaster risk reduction communities. And so you actually begin to build uh, 
um, instead of uh, instead of waiting right. for for a long time before you really have effective and meaningful responses to developing countries. Mm-hmm. And and how would this funding actually directly help people facing those losses and damages from climate change? Well, that has not really been discussed as yet because okay. we are still at a very high level. But um, as you can see from the um, you know the normal responses. One of the biggest, biggest challenges when when disasters hit is really to make sure that the communities who really deserve um, are actually uh, responded to. For instance, most of the time what happens is they are cut off. Bridges collapse, um, roads uh, are, um, you know, access is uh, blocked, roads are, are, are no longer there. How do you actually reach these communities? Um, and so particularly in the remote areas, you know, these are all huge, huge challenges. And um, a lot of the times our developing countries do not have the capacity to respond fast enough. They don't have, some of them don't have the technologies that are needed. For instance, if you see what happened in Germany, you know, when the massive floods happened, yeah. the, they had a lot of resources and they had technical technical capabilities to go fast to a particular area and do what is needed because they had the technology, they had the finance. Similarly, in a um, when you have fires that are happening, forest fires and so on, you know, many of our countries don't have the kind of equipment um, and, and fighting, fighting, I mean, firefighting equipment and uh, flights, you know, planes and yeah. bombs, you know, water bombs and all that that is required. So a lot of that actually uh, is required. So usually... Countries with a lot more capacity are able to cope, but those without capacity are actually not able to cope. So and this is what loss and damage is supposed to actually um, respond to. Okay. And I just want to go back to something you brought up earlier that, you know, that it's a very contentious issue, right? And is it because, as you mentioned earlier, it's an issue of liability and compensation? That is the main issue or of why it's so contentious in all these climate talks? Actually, for, for, for a number of us, we don't like to call it liability and compensation because that is a, quite a toxic um, language uh. within, the, within the UNFCCC. Okay. Uh, because that means what... what and, and in Paris, this was particularly a problem for the United States. And this is why, um, under the Paris decision, it actually said that any agreement on loss and damage is not about acknowledging liability and compensation. So they very clearly did not want this to be associated to liability and compensation. So what, what, uh, the, 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 what, what we need to do is to actually look at it in an additional fund, funding need, not because of any liability, but because of um, the kind of impacts that countries are facing uh, and due to the historical emissions, for the same reasons that mitigation and adaptation get financial support uh, for developing countries, that also should apply to loss and damage, not about it being a liability, but more about it being a responsibility due to the historical emissions and due to the fact that developed countries are in a much more capable position to uh, be able to um, support because they are far more technologically uh, resourced and far more financially resourced. And because of the historical responsibility, that because of all the emissions, uh, that this is why this is happening. 
Okay. You know, the emissions of past years are responsible also for the present impact that we are facing. Yeah. And and speaking of that, you know, I mean, I think the Pakistan floods really shone a light on this issue, right? I mean, those impacted by the floods, they are going to bear the financial burden for loss and damage, um, which we which we believe, you know, has been caused by a climate crisis yet. Um, but they have had little to no responsibility for this, this issue, isn't it? I think they've had what... Uh, I mean, one percent or something of global emissions, and exactly, yeah. And, and I was yeah. reading that as a member of G seventy seven and China, uh, Pakistan called for a loss and damage finance facility to be established at COP twenty six, but this was denied. And instead, it uh, instead the Glasgow Dialogue, the one that you mentioned just now, uh, has been nothing more than a talk uh, a talk shop. You know that was uh, what was said uh, was established, right? So is that pretty much where we are right now? Yeah, very much so. Um, so, but we will see the urgency much more in um, uh, Sham al Sheikh, uh, okay. you know, because the the problem is it cannot be just uh, left untouched or buried, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So the developed countries led by the United States can oppose, but there has to be a response because um, of what we are seeing right now, and particularly with um, Pakistan and the chair of the G77 and China. And having gone through what they have gone through, it's really a living nightmare. Yeah. And so this cannot be ignored any longer. So there has to be some concrete response. Um, so in any case, if it is, it is going to be hugely contentious. But nothing in the international um, process, international climate talks have, res- has, have come from easy negotiations. <laughs> so that, that, you know, you have to keep fighting and fighting. Okay. Just and I just want to know what your thoughts are on what's happening in Pakistan, Mina. I mean, when you saw those floods and you know, fifty million people displaced, you know, billions of dollars in damage, uh, death. Um, yeah, how did you feel about that? You know, watching all of that happen. No, it was absolutely painful. I mean, it's it's just you know mind-boggling um, when you see this kind of disaster strike. You know, already we see when our heart goes out to communities who who have nothing. Yeah. And for the longest time, you know, in some of these areas, it's they have been, of course, you know, they are all very vulnerable people. I mean, the, his, the years of war, the years of poverty, the years of, um, you know, um, difficult uh, terrains and so on and so forth, all that. And then on top of that, you have this, what, the, this kind of a disaster which strikes. Uh, how, how on earth do you cope? So it's really, really difficult. Um, and this just brings home the point that, uh, you know, it's it's not just an ordinary disaster. You need to have a much more uh, system systematic and systemic way of dealing with it. And even our own, I mean, closer to home, yeah? Even when we saw what's happened in Baling, yeah. because it was closer to home, many of us really felt the pain of those communities um, whose, whose uh, houses were just wiped off. Or they've lost their, yeah, their, you know, people. Remember the, the family, including the pregnant mother yes. and her child, just disappeared like that under the wrath of the floods, uh, which came from the mountains. So with after heavy rainfalls, so you do see that there is, um, there is, it, it's it's hugely um, devastating, and for a country and for many developing countries currently, what's happening is that they are. You know, apart from the current economic uh, problems that they are facing, 
due to the post-COVID and the and the current economic crisis that countries are going through. Um, and also, even the IMF, the um, the International Monetary Fund, has already shown uh, that many many countries are now rising to debt issues, increasing debt, um, and so they are hugely challenged in terms of of meeting um, the the needs of their own people, not just for climate needs, but generally even for development needs. So you can see that within a rising in uh, scenario of indebtedness um, and the lack of ability to even meet the sustainable development goals, what more addressing the climate impacts? I mean, these are all phenomenal. But there is, there is, this is where the issue of money comes, finance comes. Mm. It's not that there is no money in the world. There is a lot of money in the world. The issue is whether, as I've always said, whether there is the political will to respond so that it makes a difference to the lives of people. And that, I think, is a political question. So there are ways and, and, and mechanisms to actually address that. Uh, for instance, one of the things that we have been talking about is the special drawing rights. Mm -hmm. It's under the IMF. It is not a normal currency. It's a special currency. It's called the SDRs. Um, and at one point when the world was going through a massive economic recession, $650 billion of worth of special drawing rights were issued. Now, that could be done. And this was allocated primarily to the, to the developed world. And because it's based on allocations of how much voting power they have in the IMF. But many of these countries don't really need that. So some of these can actually be rechanneled to address adaptation, to address loss and damage, to address the just transition that is needed for developing countries to move away from the emissions pathway that is there. So this is why for the COP27 in um, Sharm el-Sheikh, Climate finance, once again, will play a very, very high role, a very, very big issue of importance um, in terms of responding to um, the needs of developing countries. So without this, this kind of, uh, this is an obligation, an international obligation. It's a legal obligation under the treaties, both of the Framework Convention and also the Paris Agreement. So if this is not met, these commitments are not coming through, then it's really a hopeless situation for the developing countries who are suffering right now. Yeah. So it's also a climate justice issue as well, isn't it? Totally, spot on. It's totally a climate justice issue. Mm -hmm. Because if not for the emissions, historical emissions and all the the you know colonial history and the plunder that happened and you know, the rich world did not become rich because they were smarter than us. They became rich because they colonized. They became rich because we continue to provide the raw materials. They control a lot of the international systems. So, you know, the north-south dynamic still is a lot of structural imbalance. So, yeah, it is a climate justice issue. It's a social justice issue. It's a developmental justice issue. So, um, on all fronts. Yeah. And, I mean, the, the devastation that is faced by, let's just, you know, uh, mention Pakistan again, right? And that's probably just a mere precursor of what we're going to see, right, with uh, higher levels of warm, warming. So it's just going to get increasingly worse if, if action is not taken. Totally. I mean, this is just the, the tip of the iceberg. Um, and this is what the scientific community, even the IPCC, is already warning. The less we do, the less we are able to limit warming to below 1.5, the more catastrophes we are going to witness. 
But this 1.5 ability to limit temperature rise to 1.5 compared to pre-industrial levels, um, that's becoming a, a big, big, big problem already now. Because as you know, because of the Ukraine war, um, the European Union, for instance, has gone reversed on its climate, uh, you know, way future or forward. Instead of um, cutting back on fossil fuels and phase out, they're going back to coal, for instance, even Germany. Right. And they're going back to gas. So instead of going into renewable energy. So, you know, this limiting temperature rise is, is going to be a huge challenge and will continue to be a huge challenge. And um, the window, the opportunity, as they say, uh, in, the, in the coming decade is, is really closing very fast. And the ritual is not doing its emissions reductions fast enough. They are including, as I said, they are reversing their policies. So we are in a very difficult world, a very, very difficult world. And I mean, I guess, as you mentioned, a lot is riding on COP27, right? So there needs to be, um, I don't know, I don't know how many wake-up calls we need, right? People are saying the Pakistan flood <laughs> should be a wake-up call. But I mean, how many do we need, right? When the Australian fires came, it was that. When Germany had the floods, it was that. But no end of wake-up calls, isn't it? Yeah, because, uh, I mean, this is not the recent, right? I mean, we've been, mm. uh, the developed world in particular, I always say that they are the biggest historical, the, the historical emitters. They have a huge, they've had a huge responsibility. And for not doing fast enough, to, you know, every day get becomes even bleaker. And so the wake up call, they, they're not waking up, they can't wake up because a lot of this is actually, like we have said before, we are very much, the current economic model in most countries, in all countries indeed, is really built on fossil fuels, yeah. um, particularly coal, oil and gas. And so we are so embedded into the, the transition, the move, the change. I mean, the United States, there's still a, half, the, half the population there deny climate as a problem still today. Yeah. yeah? And, um, God, you know, God forbid that Trump coming back. But uh, can you imagine? This is, <laughs> yes, exactly. So, so you know, um, despite all this, huge amounts of climate denialism, and then the notion that, you know, well, it's not our country, but it's also hitting their own country, mm. like Australia, you know, and it's still, it's still a big coal emitter. Yes. I mean, greenhouse gas emitter with coal emission with dependent on coal. So we, do, they, we don't know how to move uh, from um, a fossil fuel dependent to non-fossil fuel dependent. We're moving too slowly. Okay. All right. So you, you'll be at COP27 uh, this November in, in Shamal Sheikh, uh, Mina? Yes, yes, very much so. I'll be right there saying the same things, <laughs> making the same calls. And sometimes fighting the good I, fight. I, yeah, having the good fight. In all the press conferences, I continue to say that I sound like a broken record. You know? <laughs> what would we do without people like you, though? There would be nothing, and then they would win. So, yes, thank you for doing what you do. Um, before I let you go, Mina, any last message that you'd like to leave us with? Well, I, as, as always, you know, Juliet, when both of us talk about these things and we say there is no, there's only, there's no plan B, there is this only planet that we have, and we have to do everything possible to... To, to sound the alarm and ring the bell and whatever we have to do and jolt people out of their sleep. Um, so I think we continue, continue, we do need to continue to agitate for more action. 
and uh, making and holding uh, uh, governments accountable. And this is why uh, when we go to the COPs, there is a large community, not just from our part of the world, a lot of our friends from the US, from Europe, our climate justice uh, communities and campaigners around the world. Um, yeah, they're all there as well. So it actually does bring a lot of energy, the right kind of energy to send the right kind of signals. But if only politicians will wake up to the call. Thank you so much, Mina, for joining me today. I've been speaking to Minakshi Rahman, President of Sahaba Ala Malaysia and Head of Programs at the Third World Network. Uh, if you miss any part of our conversation today, you can always download the podcast at bfm.my earth or you can find it on the BFM app. This has been Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.